this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king answered and said, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. And you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men, and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagle's feathers, and his nails were like bird's claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation." All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the splendor of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lord sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are right and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now from Hebrews. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son, in whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he, beholds, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as superior to angels as a name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we come to you uh, this morning and we thank you for your word, and we pray that your word would have its way in our hearts. Lord, we come uh, bringing our baggage, uh, our doubts, our hesitations, our distractions, our shame, our burdens, and we ask that you would take them and you would work uh, by your spirit uh, in our hearts what you have for us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you weren't here last week, um, we began a series, uh, an Advent series, which is a season in the church calendar as we prepare to celebrate uh, the arrival of Jesus. Um, but we also look ahead in anticipation to his return and the renewal of all things. And this year, our Advent series is zeroing in on various names of God that we find in the scriptures, and particularly names of God that we see in the Old Testament and how those help us to understand his character, but also how they help us to understand the work of Jesus in his incarnation and death and resurrection from the dead. 
And this morning we come to this name. God is God most high. He rules and he reigns over everything. Now, there's a conversation that I have quasi-regularly in my home with my five-year-old daughter, and uh, it happens on those occasions when she's getting a little too big for her britches, when she decides that uh, she is in charge of bedtime or her diet, you know, or what she can play with or whatever it might be, she's in charge. And so we have this conversation, it goes like this, Averly, who's in charge? And she almost always says, mommy's in charge. <laughs> I said, that's true. That's true. Okay. Who else is in charge? <laughs> and she's like, daddy. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, that's true. Um, but there's something you need to know that's more important than mommy and daddy being in charge. And that is that God is in charge. And God has actually given the responsibility of mommy and, to mommy and daddy of loving and caring and serving and taking charge of you. And this is for your good. So Averly, who's not in charge? Me, is what she says reluctantly. Now listen, so this name, God is God Most High, right, is meant to convey something to us, and that is that he is the one, and he's the only one, who is truly in charge. Now immediately our hearts start doing things like this. We say, it sure doesn't seem like God's in charge. Kind of feels like I'm in charge. Or maybe those people over there are in charge. Or maybe, maybe most of us are, gravitate more to, it seems like no one's in charge. Nothing's in charge at all. But the testimony of Scripture is that God reigns. Always, everywhere, and over everything because he is God most high. He rules over kingdoms and nations. He rules over families and individuals. He reigns. He rules over success and failure. He rules over prosperity and barrenness. He reigns. He rules over good times and bad times. He rules over joys and sorrows. He reigns. And we're looking at this name of God to get at this reality about who God is. And we're looking at this name of God nestled in a story about a great king named Nebuchadnezzar that is found in a book called Daniel. And, you know, there's been lots of attention paid to this story in the artistic world. Uh, jazz pianist Marcus Roberts made it into a musical. Uh, Italian composer, composer, and I hope I say his name right, Giuseppe Verdi, and I know someone will correct me if I didn't say it right. Um, he, al- he also took his hand at this, but I don't know if you noticed, but pretty recently, Kanye West made an opera out of this story. So lots of people are paying attention to it because it speaks to the human condition And it speaks to something that all of us have to fundamentally grapple with. And that is who's in charge? Who is most high? Now this book, Daniel, um, we probably need to know a little bit of the background to it to understand what's happening here. Uh, The Israelites have been taken into captivity by the Babylonians. And this has happened sometime around 600 BC. So 600 years before Jesus. And they've been taken into captivity because of their idolatry worshiping false gods, and their injustice, the way they had treated one another. And God had warned them about this over and over and over again. In the law, in the prophets, but Israel wasn't listening. So here they were in Babylon, slaves once again. 
Yet God in his infinite mercy remained true to his covenant promises, preserving a remnant and promising that he would send his Messiah who would rule and reign over everything. But chapter 4, where we are this morning, has a surprising little twist. We're given a window into God's work in the life of a pagan king, King Nebuchadnezzar. And this reveals something about who God is. He's not just a tribal deity. He is the God of heaven and earth. He is God most high. And that's particularly relevant in a Babylonian context where they worshipped all sorts of, of gods. They worshipped Anu and Enlil and, and Enki and Marduk and Tiamat and all these great names. But it was also important because it was a time when kings thought very highly of themselves. You see, I think this is incredibly relevant to us because we're constantly giving ourselves to things as the most high in our life. But maybe even more importantly, often we act like we are the most high thing in the universe. So I want to begin, I'm going to look at three things this morning, but I'm, I'm going to give them to you as, as we move through the passage. And I want to start with this. The most high God casts down those who would exalt themselves. King Nebuchadnezzar was feeling pretty, pretty good about himself, as Larry David might say. He's strutting around on the roof of his palace in Babylon, and he's saying to himself, verse 30, Is this not great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence for the glory of my majesty? And then we're told in the very next verse, while the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And what follows is unsettling. Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind and he finds himself living out in the wild with the beasts of the field. He's eating grass, his hair grows out like eagle's feathers and his fingernails become like long claws. What in the world is going on here? We see we're jumping into the middle of the story a little bit. So let me do a little review of chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar was at the height of his power. He's made it to the top of the Fortune 500 list and he's reigning over all of the Neo-Babylonian empire. And the best way I can describe the Neo-Babylonian empire to you is it was the Silicon Valley of ancient Mesopotamia. Go do some research on this. All sorts of uh, engineering wonders and technological uh, you know, uh, advancements were made during the Neo-Babylonian Empire. Like, I mean, it was a big deal. And the capital city, it had double walls surrounding it. They were like 100 feet tall and 30 feet thick. You could like race four horse chariots on top of it. And if we can trust the Greek historian Strabo, Nebuchadnezzar oversaw the construction of the Hanging Gardens, which was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And it was like a, a mountain on top of his palace. And it was, an, it, was a, it was like a marvel of agricultural engineering, having like hydraulic water and there was foliage and there was luscious fruit. And he supposedly built it for his wife who was uh, homesick. And it included waterfalls, right? Pretty great. Now there's some debate about the existence of this but it shows up in historical records after the Neo-Babylonian Empire so much that at the very least you have to say, this is the reputation that Babylonia had. It was something magnificent 
that people continued to write about and marvel over it. And Neb is living the life, right, safe and secure and at ease, completely full of himself as he's reached the top and he reigns until God gave him a strange and troubling dream. So he calls the magicians and the dream interpreters to help him out, but they're of no help. And so he calls Daniel, God's prophet, and he tells Daniel his dream. He said, I saw this huge tree in which all the nations of the world are finding their shade. But then this tree is chopped down, stripped of its leaves, its branches cut off, and only its stump is allowed to remain. And he hears these words that this is done so that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Daniel hears the dream and he drops some bad news on Nebuchadnezzar. It's you. It's you, Nebuchadnezzar. You're the tree and you're going to be chopped down and you're going to eat grass like an animal until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And then Daniel offers some pious advice to Nebuchadnezzar. He says, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed so that there might perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Do what is right, Neb. That's personal ethics. Be kind to the poor, Neb. That's social ethics. Or you're going to be cut down to size. Now here's what's going on here. The Most High is performing an intervention in Nebuchadnezzar's life. And it's not the first. In fact, if you go back and read the first three chapters of Daniel, uh, this is the last of several interventions of God in the life of Nebuchadnezzar. And it covers about 40 years of time over and over again. But this, this last intervention is the deepest. It's a surgical intervention cutting right into Nebuchadnezzar's prideful heart. God takes this man of enormous privilege who is immensely proud of his achievements as ruler of an ancient superpower and he brings him low. Why? Because pride is a spiritually dangerous and deadly thing. You know, years ago when I was doing uh, campus ministry at Stanford, uh, I had a student and uh, he's a great student. We were very close, but I noticed something that he never, ever shared any of his struggles. And it didn't matter like what environment you're in. People would be talking about their sexual addiction or uh, their substance abuse or whatever it might be, their worry, their anxiety. And so finally one day I just asked him, I said, hey man, like you, ne you never share anything about what you're going through, what you're struggling with. And he said to me, he said, you know, I just, I don't really feel like my stuff is, you know, the stuff that everybody else deals with. And, you know, it's, it's not maybe as like significant. And I'm like, what do you mean? He's like, well, my struggle is pride. And I was like, what? I'm like, that's the heart of it all. Like, this is the thing that we're all most fundamentally dealing with. Because you know what pride does? Pride blinds us. Pride like pokes our eyes out or rips them out of their sockets. We don't see all the gifts that we have been given. We don't see all the help uh, that came to us. We don't see all the ways we're building on the work of those who come before us. And most importantly, we are blind to the kindness of God in our lives. 
That's what pride does, right? Pride blinds us. And in a sense, as one person put it, pride is cosmic plagiarism, right? It's all my work. It's not gift. And therefore, pride does something to our hearts. It hardens us. If it's mine and it's entirely the work of my hands, then I can do whatever I want and I can treat people however I want. See how pride is the source of the injustices that Nebuchadnezzar was guilty of, which Daniel called him to repent of, right? And pride comes in all sorts of forms. Many of you may have read uh, David Brooks's uh, Second Story Mountain, the story of his uh, coming to Christianity. And uh, he talks about how pride was the thing that he really had to come to grips with uh, when he began to face just the disarray of his life. And he said it comes in all sorts of forms. There's pride of power, the belief that you can make enough or gain enough or achieve enough to make yourself safe and secure. Or there's intellectual pride, that you organize life into one comprehensive ideology along one lane that explains away all the mystery. Or there's moral pride, which is the ego's desire to escape existential insecurity by proving you're better than other people, which makes you judgy and harsh. And then, of course, there's religious pride, which turns religious duties into self-serving mechanisms to make life go well for you or to make your name great. But pride, in whatever form, is destructive to our humanity. We often don't recognize it until it's done it's corrupting work. And here's the thing, you're never more vulnerable, vulnerable to it than you are when you're successful. And even when you're not successful, there is that lie that I gotta do something to make my name great. On whatever scale, in whatever area. Pride, just like cancer, is best dealt with by being detected early. Nebuchadnezzar had been ignoring all the signs for decades. And in fact, we're told in verse 28 and 29 that he had, it had been 12 months since Daniel had interpreted his dream for him. But here he is, still flaunting his peacock feathers, roaming around on the roof of Babylon, of his palace. And so God has to do something drastic. Look, if God is willing to do this for a pagan king like Nebuchadnezzar, you better be willing to believe that he will do this for you. What's it going to take? How long before we wise up? See, it's easy to be deceived about our, our self-sufficiency and self-importance until something brings you to your knees. A failed marriage, a shakeup at work, your dissertation advisor just hates your research, and suddenly, you find that your bubble bursts. And this is what this story is telling us. The Most High God will puncture the balloon of those who are full of themselves. He brings low those who try to exalt themselves. But here's the second thing. This is really, really important. The Most High will bring us low so he can raise us up and set us on better footing. See, Neb, Neb was told that all this would come upon him Verse 32, until you know the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. It's the third time it shows up in Daniel 4. And we're told in verse 34 
that at the end of his season of insanity, he lifted his eyes to heaven, his reason returned to him, and he blessed the Most High. C.S. Lewis calls this God's severe mercy, that God will do whatever it takes to bring us to our knees. But he does it in order to stand us on our feet on more solid ground. He doesn't want us to live in delusions. He wants us to live in accordance with reality. And Nebuchadnezzar here is finding this new footing after being brought low. He composes a psalm of sorts. And it's a confession from his journal. If you go back and read the beginning of the chapter, it's posted on his blog for everyone to see. And this is what he says. The Most High God's dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Nebuchadnezzar is finally coming to grips with something that we all need to realize. The kingdoms of men are as nothing compared to the kingdom of the Most High God. This is the return of his reason, he says. This is the restoration of his sanity because we never see the world rightly until we see that God is Most High. He's the greatest good. He's the grandest joy. He's the one in whom all things hold together. Nebuchadnezzar's little kingdom was restored to him and more greatness was added, we're told in verse 36. But he doesn't chest thump. He praises and honors the king of heaven and confesses that all his works are right and all his ways are just. And he closes with this little note. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. You know, some of us, I think, are really upset with God right now because of what he's allowed to happen in our lives. Right? We didn't get the job that we wanted. We didn't get the spouse that we wanted. We didn't have the kids that we wanted. We weren't respected. We weren't recognized. We weren't paid enough. We weren't noticed. We weren't honored. We weren't applauded. And sometimes, you know what? We really were ripped off. And we can mourn that. But all too often, we've just had our pride shattered and our kingdom crumbled. And we have to ask, what is most high in my life? Who is most high in my life? You will never find your footing until you find it in the kingdom of God instead of the kingdom of you. And when God shatters your pride, it's only so that you will find your footing in him. Now, I think some of us, we get a little nervous here because we're really afraid of God's surgical interventions because we think it's going to hurt too much. But that's like getting diagnosed with a removable cancerous tumor and saying, I don't want the surgery because it's going to hurt too much. If you don't get the surgery, you will die. Pride isn't healed by faking humility. It's only healed by encountering the greatness of God. Because arrogance isn't simply thinking too highly of ourselves. It's thinking too little of God. So sometimes God has to break us. The Most High God will cut us down in order to build us up. The Most High God will bring us low in order to raise us and set us on more solid ground. But there's one last thing, and this is maybe most important. The Most High 
is also willing to go low for us and for our salvation. You see, the ultimate way the Most High God dislodges pride from the human heart is not just by asserting his power over us. It's by forsaking his power for us. And here we approach the mystery of Advent. God's people had waited and waited and waited for centuries for God's deliverance, for his kingdom to come as he promised. But when it arrived, it looked very different than anyone expected. They expected God to exert his power and eliminate their enemies who oppressed them. But there was a darker enemy than the ones who stood over them. It was something that lurked inside them. When you turn to the first chapter of the Gospel of Luke, which we read in the Christmas season, we hear these words of the angel Gabriel to the Virgin Mary. Listen closely. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, ever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Do you know what this is saying? The power of the Most High enfleshes the Son of the Most High in a helpless, vulnerable baby boy. Why? So that he could live the life that we should live, die the death we deserve, and raise to newness of life. If you notice, we attached a New Testament reading this morning to, to the text we're looking at. Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Long ago and at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. We should listen. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. If you're not going to hear the prophets, will you please listen to Jesus? That the Most High was willing to get low. Who is this Son of the Most High? Jesus. He's the radiance of the glory of God. The exact imprint of His nature. He upholds the universe by the word of His power. And what did He do? He made purifications for sin. And now He reigns at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Most High God dislodges pride from our hearts by sending His Son the exact imprint of his nature, the radiance of his glory, to suffer and die for our sins. And if that doesn't humble you, nothing will. He is seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. It is to Jesus, the Son of the Most High, that all the kingdoms of the world are given. We read about this at the end of the Gospel of Matthew. After Jesus is raised, he says, all the authority in heaven and earth have been given to me. And go and make disciples of all nations. We read about this in the book of Revelation where it says the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ. Revelation eleven fifteen. We read about this in Philippians 2 where, we, where the son, Jesus, had equality with God but did not consider equality with God something to be grasped or held onto but emptied himself. Taking on flesh, becoming a man, Become obedient to death, even death on a cross. 
What has God done? He has raised him, exalted him, and given him the name that is above all names, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. You're going to bow one way or another. The one who is the son of the Most High got low, humbled himself, become obedient to death, even death on a cross for us and our salvation. What does it look like to have that pride dislodged from your heart and submit yourself to the Most High? It looks like receiving the work of Jesus, but it also looks like obeying the words of Jesus as he sends us out on mission. You know, that's, that's why Bob and Becky Faber are in Bulgaria. That's why Ryan and Amanda Burleson are in South Africa. That's why you going to work every day is supposed to be about something more than making your name great. It's about being making, making great the name of God because that's what we were made for and that's where we find our wholeness and our fullness. Pride destroys, but loving and serving the Most High, everything begins to fall into place. G.K. Chesterton uh, wrote in his book, The or or Orthodoxy, and I highly recommend it if you never read it. He said, how much larger your life would be if yourself could become smaller in it. So one, of the, one of the reasons why uh, life feels boring or dull or meaningless is we shrunk it down to our size. And God sometimes is going to have to come in and break us of our pride so that we can see the world and the universe is huge and magnificent and there is a God who reigns over it all and he has gotten low to save you and he has big plans for you in his mission. What is most high in your life? It's whatever your life is offered in service to. And it almost always dissolve, devolves into serving ourselves. The gods we serve, we serve to make our name great. But only the greatness of the most high God can dislodge pride from our hearts and actually reshape our lives so that there is meaning, there is significance, there is purpose. There is hope, there is wholeness, there is joy. God is God most high. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you, we thank you that you sent your son, son of the most high, to live and die and rise for us. We thank you that you are a God who loves us enough to intervene to break us of our pride, uh, to bring us low, that you might raise us and set us on better footing. But we thank you that you're a God that was willing to go low, to get low, in order that you might do this for us. Lord, would you do whatever it, is take to whatever it takes to dislodge this pride from our hearts, Lord, that, that's killing us? Would you perform the surgery? And Lord, would you help us to detect it early, uh, that we might find the joy and the wholeness and the honor and the absolute magnificent hope that we have in the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.